forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and potentially a bad dog mom. Hey, I'm Gabe Dunn. I'm a writer, bygone, bisexual icon, wink, and gossip girl. I'll never tell. Why would you think you're a bad dog mom? Because something horrible happened. I'll tell you right about it. Oh, this is Sugar's paw. So Sugar had an incident with her paw where where it was it was irritating her and she was sort of limping. And so John took her to the vet last week. And they determined that she probably had a foxtail in her paw. What's that? It's like a little weed, but okay. it, they said that it wasn't there anymore. And and so she would heal and they cleaned it out and whatever. And then she came home. But then she like continued to be in like so much pain. Yeah. And she was like swollen and still bleeding. But we like didn't know what to do because we didn't know like what a normal recovery Time. for that yeah. is. Right. And so then like yesterday. John like called to ask about if we could get like some like um, inflammation medication that I guess the doctor had said was an option. And that doctor wasn't in because we go to like this clinic and there was a different vet and the different vet was like, hey, this is still bothering her. It's like a week later. Like that's not normal. I should see her again. And so then John took her back into the vet. And guess what? The foxtail was still there. The foxtail was in her paw the whole time. Why would that doctor lie? Well, the the first doctor must just not have seen it. He didn't do an invasive enough search. But he claimed that he cleaned out the paw and whatever. No, John had seen this other thing on her paw, which I never once, I didn't think was the thing. But the doctor assumed that that was the issue and that it was off already, I guess, because he didn't see anything. But I just feel so bad that like we didn't take her back in sooner. Like, obviously. Why would you think that the doctor wouldn't know what he was talking about? I guess, but she was in such rough shape. But it's like both of us were just like, well, we don't know. Like, we don't know like what it don't like what it's a normal recovery is or like when you're supposed to take them. Allison, if you had said, Oh, I just never took her, I would be like, Yeah, okay. But you like did your due diligence and you trusted a doctor. I guess. But they gave us the foxtail in a little in a little tube. A what? bloody little foxtail we got to take home. Are you gonna memorialize it? Maybe, but it is pretty interesting. It's just wild that like I mean, it was probably like a centimeter long, but like wild that that whole thing was like inside her body for like a week and a half. That sucks. I know. And like poor baby. Yeah. The video of her limping was the saddest thing I've ever seen. But also like just you, you should be reasonably able to believe what a a doctor is telling you. But alas, that is not the case. I guess. But also like it was really swollen and still actively bleeding. And we should have been a little more proactive about getting her back to the vet. But it's a lesson. It's a lesson. And next time we'll know. I think you're being hard on yourself. Oh, well, thank you. Can I uh, switch gears entirely? Absolutely. So my name change went through. Yes! So I... Uh, changed my name and I w- have been going through all the whole pro like the process which was like I had to go to the courthouse I had to get a court order I had to pay like $430 for that then I had to uh, take that I had to wait so I had to like apply for it then I had to wait like a month like six weeks for them to approve it then they approved it then with the court order then I had to go back in 
And then for each copy of the court order, so I got three, that costed uh, $150. Per order? No, like total. Okay. Then I got them. Then I brought them to the bank and they changed my credit cards. And so that was the first thing I got was like new credit cards and new checks. And that guy was really nice. Like it's really dependent on who you get. Yeah. So like I walked in and the guy was like, this is the tell is as a trans person. If you go and you change your name and the person behind the counter looks at what you're doing and then looks up at you and goes, hey, congratulations. Yeah. Then you go, okay, it's about to be smooth sailing. Right. So then I went to the DMV and to get like my new ID and the woman was like, you don't have what you need. And now you have to go to get a social security card first, which like is not always the case. Oh. And, I, and I've heard like various um, friends of mine say, oh, the DMV person started asking me a lot of really invasive questions. And I wasn't sure if that was like supposed, they were supposed to ask that or whatever. So it's like very based on who you get. So then I went to the social security office and I was like waiting and there was, and you like wait for your number to be called. And there was a young girl in like a, a Lakers shirt that was Mickey Mouse. And I was like, if I get her, I'm fucking golden. <laughs> so I'm like waiting, waiting. Oh my God, I hope I get her. So I go up, I get her, thank God. And I like show her what I'm doing. And I'm like, have all my documents ready. And she just goes, oh, hey, congratulations. And then she just does it. Aww. So it's really based on like who you get. Then. Which should not be the case. I know. It's crazy. So then I finally got all that stuff in the mail. I got my social security card in the mail. I got, I, I put together my court order, social security card, two pieces of mail. Like I had, I had like a stack of paperwork being like a passport. I'm like, anything they ask me for, I'm going to have it mm -hmm. prepared. And so I go to the DMV yesterday and I get a woman and I'm like waiting and I get a, a woman who's like middle-aged and I'm like showing her what I'm doing and stuff. And she's and she's like being so helpful. And like I was like, it could have been such a toss up, but she was being so great and so helpful and like was just like, oh, you're just you're just uh, losing two letters, huh? Like <laughs> just being really like figuring slowly throughout the interaction, figuring out that it was a trans thing. Like I was like, and the gender marker. And she was like, oh, and the gender marker. Like it was slowly occurring to her throughout the interaction. And then she was like, yeah, you know, I ran out of those forms. We've been getting a lot of gender marker changes lately. You know, there's there was a sweep of them. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And then she was like, oh, so you got to publish this in the newspaper, right? You got to publish that you changed your name in the newspaper. Because when you change your name, some states have laws that you have to publish it in the newspaper. What? Oh, you didn't know that? No. Yeah. How, how do you publish such a thing in the newspaper? You have to like submit to the newspaper. Like they publish like name changes in the newspaper. In its own section? Yeah. And it's like, I don't know exactly why. Maybe it was like in order to do, to, to avoid fraud or something. I don't know. But it's like an old law. And so like there's this really dangerous thing where like in some states you still have to publish your name change in the newspaper. Oh my God. Like this was my old name. This is my new name in the newspaper. So she was like, oh, you have to publish this in the newspaper, huh? And I was like, no, in California, if you change your gender marker, then you don't have to publish it in the newspaper. So they did that to like protect trans people, basically. Like if you change your name, you might still have to. But if you change your gender marker, you don't have to. So every person who changes their name to like when they get married has to be published in the newspaper? I think so. Yeah. Really? Yeah. There's no way that my friends who have done that have been published in the newspaper. I mean, look, I think a lot of Who's it is- Who's enforcing this? Right. I think it's a lot of punitive trans stuff. Like, yeah. I think it's just like, you know, to make things difficult. Can it so, be in any newspaper? Like, can I start my own newspaper? 
and it's just and for it's trans just, people yeah. to publish their name yeah, and then and you then publish no, it and, and then, then you, you just rip, rip it up. up. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even when I changed my, like my business, I made like a alias business for my business and I had to publish it in a newspaper. Really? Yeah. Which and newspaper? I picked like the one that had the cheapest prices. I don't even right. remember which one it was. Like, oh, you so can, this is a real racket for the newspapers. Yeah. Like yeah. you can just, they have, when you do it, you look up on the website where you can do it. And like, they have the forms. This is something normal that they do. You just fill out this two minute form. And I just picked the one that was the cheapest. I feel like I've been living under a rock. I had no idea about this. Yeah, it's crazy. But now they, now with, if you do your gender marker too, they don't make you. That's great. So I want to address something also. So I posted a picture of me with my paperwork and I changed my gender marker to male. And there is the option to have non-binary. And some of the comments were like, oh, does this mean that you're now a binary trans man? Which one, what is that? Like what I think that there's a lot of discourse and discussion around the use of like binary trans or binary and, you know, as sort of like almost used as a pejorative in some ways. And I think it was people wanting to categorize me like very quickly. Like they're like, are you this? Are you that? Are you changing your pronouns? Are you using this? Are you using that? Like, and I understand it comes from like a place of not wanting to be wrong, but it also is like very limiting and very doesn't allow for like other situations. And like the reason that I chose male on my, on my ID is largely the number one reason is because I am from the South. I'm from Florida. I travel around, like I drive cross country sometimes and I don't want to get pulled over or I don't want to have a situation where a police officer or someone knows that I'm trans. They can know that maybe from looking at me at a certain point until a certain point maybe or or always, but I don't want to hand an ID to an authority figure that says, non-binary. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's safe. I mean, it's up to you. You do what you want in your life. But like to me, tra- I couldn't imagine like traveling through a, a hostile, I mean, Tennessee at this point right. and having a gender marker that indicates that that I'm trans in any way. So that's really, it was like, that's the safety issue is like changing my ID to, and all of my stuff to have a male name and having a male gender marker in order to, and, I, and it's sad it is sad, but it's the state of what's going on right now in order to like be safe. Now, will they immediately Google me and see that I'm trans? Absolutely. <laughs> but I don't know how often the cops are Googling you. So I think that's, I think Maybe I'm- Maybe if they have a little crush. <laughs> <laughs> because we did, one time my ex and I got pulled over in New Jersey and their ID still says female and the cop was hassling us a little bit. Yeah. So I was like, I don't want that. I don't want that for me. So that's why the people who have been asking and also I've been using like he and they interchangeably and that doesn't put me in any sort of box. It's just it's just ease of movement through the world, baby. And shit's hard right now. And that's 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 my truth. Thank you for sharing. You're welcome. This is just between (laughs) us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games and brutal honesty. We have a really, I think, special episode this week. Yeah, we're going to be talking to Laura Cathcart-Robbins all about addiction and recovery um, and about being a person of color in the addiction and recovery space, especially a black woman. And it was a really, really fascinating interview. And later, we're going to be talking all about writing workshops, but more specifically, this really amazing writing workshop that Melissa is currently doing. And I want to grill her about it. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> we want to know the benefits, the pros and cons. Let's fucking go. But first, we have got to answer a listener's question. And you know what that means? Hit it! International question! International question! International question! Emma, fake name. Incredible. <laughs> from, from the country of fake name. Yeah, I just love that that was made very clear. So Emma, not really Emma, said, Dear Alice and Gabe and Melissa, My name is Emma, she, her, and my best friend is named Fitz, he, they. Those are fake names I made up for privacy. And Fitz loves his alias. Fitz and I are both longtime fans of your work. Hey, Fitz. Hey, Emma. I met Fitz five years ago as my randomly assigned freshman year roommate. Oh, that's so cool when that happens. really cute. And since then, we've been best friends. Fitz is kind, smart, and steadfast, and I love them a lot. I feel incredibly lucky that I met someone so special. I recently told Fitz that in the happiest version of my future life, it includes them in a really central way. Then I popped the question. Would they consider planning to one day buy a house together? He said, yes, I am so excited. We both are. I know we can live together harmoniously as we have already done so, including sharing one room for two years, which is not the plan in our next home. (laughs) To clarify, Fitz and I are not and have never been romantically together. I think of them as something like a domestic or queer platonic partner, not a romantic or sexual one. We both want to date other people and potentially find romantic partners who would be interested in a queer, non-traditional living arrangement in the long term. And each have dated people in the time of being friends, though we're both currently single. I'm ecstatic to think of how Fitz and I can make our future the best version for us instead of defaulting to a traditional nuclear family setup. And the idea of a multi-adult household full of loved ones makes me so, so happy. Mm -hmm. I thought asking a podcast about friendship would be a great place to discuss this. I have two questions. One, do you have any suggestions for actually planning for this future, managing finances, hi Gabe, house buying, and creating an intentionally built chosen family? Two, how do we share this with potential romantic partners as we date? And at what stage of a relationship does it make sense to tell a partner about this plan? What do we do if the partner isn't excited about this idea? Thanks so much for reading. Oh, P.S., they sent a candle recommendation for Melissa, which is extremely funny. <laughs> okay, so yes. First of all, let's go with number two. Number two is, what do we do if a partner isn't excited about this idea? They're probably not right for you. Yeah. Honestly, like, I think you need to be, this is an unconventional situation, although it's becoming more conventional because of houses are impossible to purchase. But I think someone that you would want to be with long-term is someone who would understand this and who would be a part of a lifestyle or a way of thinking that would line up with your way of thinking about this. So that's the thing. If they aren't excited about that idea, rejection is God's protection. Well, also the element of when do you tell them? Um, Immediately. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like when it would come up, like when you would mention like you're where, I mean, it is interesting to sort of share it before it's happened, right? Because then I think it's not like, hey, where do you live? It's like, oh, my future plan is blank. Right. So I think before it happens, I think like once you guys are talking about more serious things, like what you guys want for the future, what kind of lives you want to have, then I think that that comes up. And then once it's actually a reality and you're living together, then I think it is pretty immediate, something that would you, you know, you would share pretty like first date. This is my living situation. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, what I'm looking for. Because like Gabe said, this is, you know, a non-traditional thing. And so you want to kind of sniff out like who's going to be into that and who's not. 
earlier on. And I think chosen family, especially for queer people, is extremely important and not that wild of an idea. Like Mm -hmm. you will be able to find people who absolutely get it. You know, I think queer platonic relationships are so important and are something that is so joyful that we get to experience as queer people. I don't think it's that wild to be like, this is the person I live with. This is the person I want to live with. Like, I think you should think about the openness of like, if one of us meets someone, will will we want to move out to be with that person? If we meet someone, would we want that person to move in with us? Like that kind of thing. Like, I think you and Fitz really need to figure that out like now. I mean, also, it could be the thing of like, you guys have this house. It works for you to live together and be queer platonic partners for a while. Some you guys each meet someone you want to move. You use the house as like a real estate investment, you know, something like that. Financially, you're not married. So the protections are very loose. Um, And so I think you need to both have independent lawyers who will draw up contracts for you that specifically say what happens in each situation because you guys love each other now, but like anything could happen. And I would say this with my my ex who uh, we're working on splitting up a house right now. It's going quite poorly, but it would be this thing of like, well, but we love each other now. Why would we, you know, anticipate poor things in the future? And I would always say, okay, but what if you hit your head and suddenly you, it's like no, no fault of our own. You have a completely different personality. Like you never, it, all this to say you don't know what will happen in the future. So I think you really need to um, protect yourselves financially, both of you. I think you need to treat it like a business decision that you're making together. You're going into business together. This is like a, a purchase that is a, a big like business decision. So you need to be very clear on like who pays for what, um, what the division of, of labor is even for the house. And then, you know, if you want to have a combined bank account, I don't recommend it. Just I just never do. I just don't ever think it's a good idea. My ex and I had, a, I had one bank account together that we paid our mortgage out of and that was it. So that was the only shared bank account we had. Everything else was like, you're on your own. And especially for you two, since you're not married or planning to get married or romantically together, there's no reason to combine finances in that way other than as it pertains to the house. So I think maybe creating one bank account out of which you pay your mortgage. I think also in terms of the down payment and the closing costs and all of those fees, you should in that document or in the legal document you make be very specific about what percentage each person pays in terms of the down payment, how much each of you are willing to put into a down payment, doing all this research together. You really need to also like write down, what do I want out of a house? If one of you really wants a pool, the other one doesn't want a pool and the pool's gonna cost an extra 15K, what does that mean for you guys? Um, If, you know, what neighborhood do you want to be in? What style of house do you want? And like, you know, it's different than renting because with renting, you're like, ah, this wall is blue and I don't really care for it, but whatever. But you guys should really talk about like, how do you want to decorate the place? Because like once you own it, you can kind of do what you want. Um, So I think there's like a lot of big conversations you guys should absolutely have between each other. But I don't think that it is a bad idea. No, I think it's just being pragmatic about it and having legal documents that have been drawn up by lawyers 
is very important Mm -hmm. because you, you know, it's like you want to be, you want to anticipate the best, but be prepared for the worst. Correct. Yeah. And I think this is the thing that's going to be happening more and more and become more and more normalized because it's impossible to afford a house on your own. So I even could see situations where two couples purchase a house together or like friends are going in on buying houses together because people are not as into the traditional family structure or getting married or even, you know, queer people. I mean, there are friends of mine who are in a polycule and they are four of them and they have kids in that polycule and that's how they live. Like the whole like man, wife, 2.5 kids situation, not only doesn't exist really in the same way because the higher cost of living and the lower wages, but also because people are looking at life differently and that'll probably increase more as Gen Z and Gen Alpha grow up and that there's more ability to communicate about differing lifestyles. You don't have to just accept the lifestyle that you see your parents have around you. You can see on whatever, TikTok or or wherever, you can see other types of, of living situations. So I don't think what you're suggesting is is so wild. I do think there are, there is a type of person that you could date who would be very uncomfortable with this. There's certain things that you can only do with one person. Like when I was getting married, it was sort of this idea that like I was having another relationship with someone, but you can only in this country marry one person. So, so that, I mean, legally. So we are still working in a system that favors marriage in a system that favors, you know, oh, we like, even when me and my ex were buying our house, the bank was reluctant to give us a loan because we weren't married. So that is something that we're still living, unfortunately, in a world that you're up against. But I think it will become increasingly popular for to do this with friends. Just be open with people about it, I think, because, you know, there's also a thing about moving into someone else's space instead of being able to start a home together. That's what, yes, that's and what so I meant I to say. so I can imagine right. that being a potential issue of someone feeling like, oh, I have to move into this pre-established home that I had no part in building. Yes. So that's something I would be cognizant of and have a way to talk about and have your reasons for why that's important to you and all of that stuff. But it's really exciting and, and good for you for breaking the mold. That's what I was trying to get at. You you got at it much better than me. <laughs> that there's certain things that that people say, oh, well, I want to be the person to build a home with you. And if you've already built a home with someone else, I don't want to date you. Yeah. But again, that's, you know, that's a compatibility thing. And, and, and maybe there's a version where you sell that house and the three of you buy a new house. You know, you just exactly. be, be open to different versions. You know, this is a great place to start and a thing to want. But don't feel like because you've declared this as your future, you have to be locked into it forever if if things change. Exactly. You put things much more succinctly than I do. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully that helped. If you want to submit an international question, you can send an email to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Up next, we've got an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guest, Laura Cathcart-Robbins. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, most controversial segment known to all of podcasting. 
tough questions. This week on the show, our guest is Laura Cathcart Robbins, the host of the popular podcast, The Only One in the Room, and author of the forthcoming memoir, Stash. Or I guess it's already out. It came out. It came out. (laughs) She has been active for many years as a speaker and school trustee and is credited for creating the Buckley School's nationally recognized committee on diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. Hello. Hi. Congrats on your book. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate you. What has it been like, you know, to to have it finally out in the world after what I imagine is if months, if not years of work on it? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I we have a family dinner here every Sunday and my older son's girlfriend asked me that same question just a couple of days ago. And I was like, I pointed at my son. And I'm like, it's kind of like him. <laughs> Like I did all this, you know, but I did all this work to like shape him and kind of get him ready for the world. And now he's out there like doing his thing and I get reports back, but it's not, I feel like less connected to whatever it's doing than the making of it. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Cause now it's like up for interpretation versus like you yes. changing it still. No, it's like on its own journey. Yes. <laughs> Can you kind of take us through the your own personal history that led you to write this book? Yeah, absolutely. So the 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 book is about 10 months of my life in the year 2008. And during that time I ended a marriage. I entered treatment for drug and alcohol abuse and I started a relationship with the man that I'm still with now almost 15 years later. So now I'm almost 15 years sober still in this relationship with this man. Um, I left my my young sons. They were um, both under 10 at that time to go to treatment. It was the hardest thing I ever did. And then, you know, I, I finished getting divorced and then I like started this relationship. So the book really chronicles that. It's written in first person, active voice. So I don't ever kind of pop out and give you my perspective from the point where I am now, you know, 12. I mean, uh, well, at the time that I wrote it, it was 13 years later. So I don't give you that perspective. I just take you with me through what that year was like. And I think one of the things that's so exciting about this book is it's kind of a point of view that we don't necessarily see that much um, when talking about addiction and recovery. Yeah. I mean, thank you. Thank you for that, because it's true. The when when I got sober and when I was going through my divorce and I was trying to, you know, be a good mom to my kids, I I just didn't see any books written from that intersection of privilege and race and addiction and, and relationships. You know, like I didn't see anything that talked about any of those things from a, the perspective of a woman of color. And, you know, there are obviously addiction um, memoirs written by by people of color but not usually from the place of privilege. They're usually involving like prostitution and drug dens and those, you know. Salacious stuff that sells. It is. And and then thrilling stories, but not my story. And so for, and then the other things, you know, the really biggies like Brene Brown and um, Cheryl Strait, they're written by white women. Amazing, again, memoirs. I can find lots of myself in them, but I never found a full representation of who I was. It's one of the reasons I wrote the book. And I imagine the motherhood of it all is such a distinct and extra painful aspect of it. So can you speak a little bit to like how we're sort of told that like to take a step away from your family is like sacrilege when in reality, sometimes that's what you need to do to be there for your family. A hundred percent. 
I talk about it like this. I say that my maternal instinct, and I know this is not true for all parents, but my maternal instinct is the strongest instinct I have. I would, without a thought, take a bullet for my kids. I would do anything to protect them. And it's been like that since the moment they were born. Not why I was carrying them. <laughs> I wasn't that connected to them. <laughs> I did not like being pregnant. But but once they were each born, it has been it was like on. Like I'm I'm in, I'm all over them. I'm not just loving them. I am in love with my kids. And then, you know, there was there was this, this, this addiction that that came into my life after my kids were born. And a lot of people, there was a lot of shame for me about that because a lot of people get sober you know, before they have kids so that they can be, you know, present for their kids. Mine snuck up on me while my kids were little. And so, you know, I have this, this addiction, which is now bigger than my maternal instinct, which is the biggest instinct I have. It's bigger than my instinct for self-preservation, because what I was doing during this time period that I write about was taking lethal doses of a sleeping pill, washing it down with vodka and adding Benadryl to that cocktail so that I could get to sleep. So with that, I should have died like many, many, many times. And I, I didn't, and I'm so grateful that I didn't. But so my maternal instinct was bigger than my instinct for self-preservation. And this addiction was bigger than that. And I felt like I didn't have a choice. I felt like it was survival to feed the, the addiction so that I could show up for my family. So absolutely that reverse order had to come in when I got sober my recovery had to come even before my kids, which was super counterintuitive for me because after I got sober, all I wanted to do was be with them, to snuggle up with them, to hang out with them, to, you know, be their mom. And it meant that, you know, if there were a 12-step meeting or, you know, my kids wanted me to watch TV with them, I had to go to that meeting anyway. Like it was always that really tough choice for me to put my recovery first. Can you talk about being a, a woman of color, specifically a black woman in the recovery space? Because I know your podcast is like the only one in the room, yes. right? And I know that that's broad, but it made me think of, you know, how my, I come from a family of addicts and alcoholics. And in the room is what you say about being in a 12-step meeting. So it's kind of like, a, I know probably on purpose, a double entendre or something. But I imagine like going to into recovery, it's not a lot of people that look like you. I mean, you just said a mouthful, like it is, it is like the recovery center, the treatment center I went to, I was the only black person there. There was one other black guy that worked there. I saw him the day I checked in. I never saw him again. So already I was the only person. I, I want to say I was the only person of color there, but there might've been somebody else of color. I don't remember, but certainly I was the only black person there. And then I come back to Studio City to Los Angeles where I live and I enter the recovery meetings here, you know, uh, right away. I get, I go to two or three meetings a day. And yeah, as I'm looking around, I'm the only black one um, wherever I go. And and now, like even now there, if I'm not the only one, there's maybe two or three of us. It's very rare that there's a group of us in inside these groups. And it was especially challenging during the summer of 2020 to be black in these white spaces and then have this cultural reckoning happening outside that was giving me anxiety, making me mad, making me sad, all things that could call for a drink, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and then 
I wasn't able to really express them in my recovery meetings, these feelings I was having, because there was no mirror for me there. There was no affinity. So I ended up finding recovery meetings that were for people of color specifically that that came about during that summer. I imagine because AA is so particular about we are not political. Do not say anything political in the room. We are not. So like, I imagine if you were like, hey, I'm actually struggling with wanting to relapse because of all the sort of um, murders of black people at the hands of police, they would probably say, oh, we don't want to talk about that here. Right. Outside That's issue. Not, we're not getting into that. Yeah, yeah. It's political. Yeah. I'm, I actually never had anybody come back to me and say that, but that was certainly the vibe I got yeah. in the meetings. It didn't really need to be said. Did that differ in the in the people of color meetings that you went to? Oh, my goodness. Can I just tell you like a really quick story? <laughs> yes. The January 6th, two years ago, you know, the day of the 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 insurrection, uh, me and all the people that I knew who looked like me were having a particularly difficult time with what was happening, not just as Americans and and patriots, but as black people who knew that if it were black people storming that Capitol, there would be blood all over those stairs. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't. And as, as I watched, the more I watched, the more upset I got. And I got this link in my email. I was sitting at my my desktop just like vibrating with all these different feelings, like bubbling over with them. And this link said emergency people of color meeting now. And I clicked on it. And it's like, it's going to make me emotional. There were hundreds of people from all over the world. They were in London. They were in Lagos. They were in Puerto Rico. They were everywhere coming together to, to just commiserate and support each other so that we could support each other about what was happening and, and be real and speak our real minds about what was happening and not have to code it or you know edit it because somebody may take offense or might not understand nobody on this meeting took offense everybody on this right. meeting understood that's so beautiful yeah. amazing yeah why do you think it is that there weren't other black people at the rehab center i'm assuming or or wherever you were inpatient and why do you think there aren't more black people in the rooms so i think this particular set treatment center that i chose first of all it was in wickenburg arizona Okay. (laughs) So if you know where that is, it's because the Meadows is there. If you don't know where that is, it's because you don't know about the Meadows. And it is a, it's one of those premier, very costly Mm -hmm. rehab centers. It's really, they focus on, on love and sex addiction, which I was completely unfamiliar with at the time. I, I thought it was just like an excuse that guys gave to cheat on their girls. Like, (laughs) I'm a sex addict, baby. I didn't know it was real until I went there. And now I understand a lot more about it. But it's very costly. It's in the middle of nowhere. Arizona is, I mean, especially where I was, it's just really white. So, you know, had I known more (laughs) at the time, I probably wouldn't have gone there either. But I was honestly looking for some place where none of my neighbors, I wouldn't run into anybody I knew because I was so ashamed. Mm. Um, So I didn't want to go anywhere in L.A. Arizona is a really quick flight from here. And so, and, and they promised me a private room, which I was really, really (laughs) trying to insist on. They didn't give me one, but they promised me one. They lured me there with that promise. So I think that's why I think, you know, for a black person, especially coming from the city to go to an all white space in a very remote area amongst people who probably don't share their experience, 
and, and, and again, that's, you know, at a very high cost is probably not as alluring as the Salvation Army, which is downtown as, you know, even just like there are so many different um, treatment centers here in L.A. that are kind of median costs that have a more diverse clientele. I think there are a lot of black people in recovery. I just think it's really segregated. That's what I think. I think in Los Angeles, it's especially segregated. I think that the black people meetings are on, they're just geographically undesirable for me. They're far. Mm -hmm. I, they're, they're far from where I live and the meetings I go to are 10 minutes from my house, but I do occasionally go to where there are more black people. It's like kind of being cold for a long time and then sinking into a warm bath after a while and <laughs> like, ah, okay, I'm hearing my language. But yeah, I think there are as, as percentage wise, as many black people in recovery as there are white people is just segregated. We just don't see each other. Or we don't see the experiences reflected, like you were saying in your book, like what is the difference in what you experienced versus like, you know, I mean, obviously it was fake, but like James Fry. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that we're so used to these like guys, white guys, sort of recovery memoirs. Yeah, I think, I mean, and, and I have to preface this by saying I was so resistant. I felt sentenced when I went there. I went there so that I could keep my kids in my life, but I hated it. I hated everything about it. I hated everything communal that was completely foreign to me. I did not want to sleep in a room with other women that I did not know. I didn't want to smell the air that they breathed in and out at night. I didn't want to go to their meetings. I didn't want to go to group therapy with them. Like I was resistant. I fought. I did not go quietly into the night. <laughs> and so everything like that was the scaffolding for my experience there. On top of that, I felt very entitled to be apart from because I was black and I was the only person there. And all I saw was all these rah-rah little white girls who were so into it with their notebooks and they were like ready to be sober and they had big smiles and I hated them. I hated all of them. <laughs> and so my experience is tainted by that, though. It's skewed because I was so angry. I was unwilling to, to allow myself to be a part of anything because I thought that would be admitting something that I wasn't ready to admit there. That I, that I was an alcoholic, that I was an addict, that I couldn't do this by myself. So my experience was definitely different, but I think a large part of what made it different was me. One of the things you said that really s stuck out to me was when you said that it, that the addiction s snuck, a, like snuck up on you. And can you sort of like explain what that was like, like how, you know, it, it went from one day not being a problem at all to like suddenly realizing or, or trying not to realize that it was? Yes. Probably six years uh, prior to my going to treatment, I think I was dealing with a really debilitating postpartum anxiety. This was after my second son was born. I, I thought I asked my doctor if it could be postpartum depression and and he said no. And he kind of dismissed the idea um, of it at that time. And I think in one aspect, he was right. I don't think it was postpartum depression. I think it was postpartum anxiety. And I also think that he missed an opportunity to to kind of diagnose me and, and, and kind of look a little further into what I was dealing with. I've always presented well. So I, I absolutely came into his office presenting well that day. And 
gave him no indication except for my question that I was struggling with anything. But uh, almost, I, I would say, a couple years later, I, I just wasn't sleeping. My kids would wake up one after the other. Um, they would wake each other up. They would stay up. They would wet the bed. I would have to change them. Then it was morning. And, you know, my now ex-husband was off to work and I was just on no sleep. And this anxiety that I was dealing with was was heightened, you know, each each night that it continued, it would heighten more. And so finally, my regular doctor prescribed Ambien for me to get to sleep. And oh, boy. You know, I, I well, first of all, at that time, I, I had never heard of Ambien. I didn't know what it was. I liked pills, but I didn't like sleeping pills. And I didn't I didn't know anything about this. I I would um, recreationally take Vicodin whenever it came my way. I thought that was really fun and kind of a nice mind vacation. But I, I wasn't struggling with an addiction to it. And so when he offered me Ambien, I didn't know anything about it. And I described that period of my life like if you can imagine a fire alarm going off in your head and your head only all the time, all the mm -hmm. time. You just couldn't get away from it. You couldn't silence it. And then I took that pill and for the first time, everything went quiet. It was blissful. It was the best feeling. It was the best night's sleep I've ever had. And I had like these gorgeous dreams that I never wanted to leave. But then I woke up feeling ready for the world. I, you know, I wanted to like hang out with my kids again. I wanted, I knew I could be a good mom because I just had this really incredible experience with this pill with getting eight hours of sleep. And so like the first year I had a bottle of 30 and I took 30 during that year. It's different points, kind of like treats. Mm -hmm. Like I'll treat myself this weekend because it's been a, we've had a really long week and my ex, you know, now ex-husband's here, so he can take care of the kids and I'll basically clock out for the night. And then the next year I started taking one per night. And then the year after that, I needed like one and a half to get to sleep. And then the year after that, it was probably two to get to sleep and maybe a half in the middle of the night to get back to sleep. And then, you know, by year six, which is the year I write about, it was really, I was taking 10 a night. It was as many as I could get my hands on. Yeah. And washing those down. Yeah. How were you able to get access to that much? Were you going to multiple doctors? Yes, I was. I was doing something that I don't think is possible. So don't get any ideas now. But back then in 2008, there, there was just everything was a little bit looser. There, there weren't, you know, like I could use my name is Laura Cathcart Robbins. I could be Laura Cathcart. I could be Laura Robbins. It didn't really matter like date of birth and social security number, like they didn't, they didn't gather the data the same way then. And so it was easier kind of to work the system. And I didn't actually go out to seek doctors that weren't mine to prescribe it for me, but all the doctors that were mine, as many as them, if I could get them to prescribe it to me, I did. And at that point, like, are you thinking, oh, this is like a little sketchy what I'm doing or like, is this worrisome? Like, should I be doing this? Or was the desire for the pills just so strong? Because that's that's sort of my understanding of addiction is that your brain has changed. And so your brain has now had this sense that like, I need this to survive. And so you it, it is not the same as like, oh, I want a slice of cake and I won't have a slice of cake. Like your brain has been trained that it needs this thing. So you're not necessarily thinking in the same way you would before an addiction. So what was sort of going through your mind as you were taking 10 pills a night? And were you hiding that behavior from your husband? 
yeah, I was hiding that behavior from everybody, um, including mm-hmm. him, including my kids, yeah. including our housekeeper, including like the groundskeeper, like everybody, <laughs> everybody I had an elaborate scheme to hide whatever was happening from, you know, that, 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 that thing that you talk about, like Robin Williams has that great quote where he says he was compromising his standards faster than he could lower them. And mm-hmm. that, that was my experience. I would, I never intended to take 10 Ambien a night. Like that was never my intention. I absolutely knew that I needed to take less. I don't think it really occurred to me that I needed to stop until it was time for me to go to treatment. I, I really thought that I could manage this still because, you know, during this time, I didn't think, I don't think I mentioned this. I was the parent association president at my kid's school. I had just been asked to join the board. I was still playing tennis with the girls. I was working out with my trainer three times a week. Like my days were really full of people, you know, places where I had committed myself and continue to show up for again, presenting really well dressed well, you know, hair done, nails done, like all of that tremendous effort. And so I had this very full life where I was fooling everybody. And I just thought I would get like the right kind of cocktail. This is like, I'll get it like maybe it'll be three a night and then I'll be good to go. And I can do this forever. I'll do this for the rest of my life. That's what I was thinking. But by, you know, by bedtime, I was already taking more than I intended to. And then I was up probably twice in the middle of the night taking more. And I, I hated that I was doing that. But it, you're right. It did feel like survival. Because it's interesting because then are you sober during the day? And so it would just be at, at night that this, that this kind of craving would come in? Or did you then start to need assistance throughout the daytime as well? Yeah. So up until the period that I write about, I was sober during the day. Somewhere in those months, like March, April, May, like while school was in session, if I was giving a speech, like a big speech for the parent association, I would take like a corner of an Ambien so my hands wouldn't shake. Mm. Like I couldn't get loaded because I would go to sleep. (laughs) So that would would be the end of me there. But I, I also was visibly detoxing if I didn't have something in my system. So I would break off like a corner of it and take it before the meeting. And then I would strategize everything that way. Like, how long can I go before I start detoxing? I can do this three-hour stretch here, but then I have to come home and take a corner. And then I'll, I can go back and do this. And then I can play tennis. And then I have to come back. So all day was like that. When did you realize that you had to go into treatment? Or or we're told that you had to because it yeah, sounds yeah. like. Yeah, or we're forced into it. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I actually wasn't forced into it. What happened was it was 4th of July of 2008, and we had a beach house in Malibu, and my my husband was gone uh, working for a few days. It might have been a couple weeks, and I took the kids out there. I left my stash in Studio City where where we lived because I knew I had a stash in Malibu, and I went out there. Um, with the kids, I drove them out there and when, and I didn't have anything in my system. But when I got there, I was in such debilitating uh, withdrawal that I was like, I can't take them to the fireworks. Uh, we had a neighbor with kids around the same age. So I, I told them I had a headache, which was true. My whole body ached. It, it, detox, withdrawal is the worst. It's like the worst flu you can imagine. Mm-hmm. The most painful flu you can imagine with sweats and brain zaps and nausea. Like it's, it's, 
like I couldn't do anything when I was in that state. So neighbor agrees, takes the kids. I go to my Malibu stash and I'm intending to take like a couple and then take a few later. And there are only three. I thought I had like 10 or so. And I freak out. I'm completely panicked because I know that three won't get me through the night and I can't stay there. I can't stay in Malibu. And I also am so sick that I need something in my system right at that moment. So I take the three, I wash it down with vodka, I find Benadryl in the bathroom. And then I kind of have this spiritual experience where I seek to sink to my knees in the bathroom and I see myself in the mirror. I end up passing out in my bed shortly after that, but I wake up really quickly and I realize that I can't get loaded enough anymore on what I have. Like whatever amount of pills I have isn't enough to get me loaded. And I can't, I can't be in withdrawal, which is what I am when I'm, when I'm not loaded. So I was at that crossroads and I needed to do something. And I made the decision that I was going to tell my husband and then I was going to go check into treatment. Wow. How did he take that? Super supportive, which made me highly suspicious. (laughs) We were in the middle of a divorce then. And we hadn't, you know, we hadn't been close for a while because we were getting divorced. And he was so warm and generous and supportive that I thought it might be a ploy like, oh, he's going to he's going to take the kids while I'm there. He's going to use this as an excuse to take the kids. But that um, that. I don't want to spoil anything from the book, but um, I, that's what I thought at the time. But he was very, very warm and supportive. Did it feel like a huge release to finally tell someone this thing? No. No? <laughs> no, it was horrible. I was like dreading telling him. And then as soon as it was out of my mouth, I was like, why did you do that? You're an idiot. <laughs> you should have never told anyone. I still thought like the addict mind was like, you can do this by yourself. Don't let anyone in. We'll figure it out. I got you. Like, that's what it was telling me. And I, I really thought I had just blown it by letting him in. And then I told my divorce attorney and then I told, told my mom. And then I actually, I told my mom first. And then I told him and told my divorce attorney and, and no one else knew that was it. Those three people. Because it feels like once you say that you can't, you can't take it back. Like. That now people know and you got to do something about it. A hundred percent. now they know. Yeah. Ugh. It's, it's, I've closed the back door by telling Yeah. Him. Yeah. But that's the way that you can move forward. Yes. yes. Was your mom shocked? If you, were you close to your mom at the time? And, and was she shocked to find out that she didn't know this part of your life? Yes. I mean, I'll just say that everyone was shocked. Everyone was shocked. There wasn't anybody in my life, even like when my mom read the book, she had no idea what was going on with me then. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I really uh, isolated myself during this time period. So I went out and like kind of did my performances, like I told you about, like the parent association meeting and the, the working out and the gatherings or whatever. And then I came home and I shut myself off. There were no more phone visits with my friends. I didn't visit with anybody unless it was absolutely necessary. And then I, you know, I had a, a I had a ticking clock. I was going to go into withdrawal soon, so I could only see you for half an hour before things started going bad. So I really was isolated and everyone was shocked. There are people, I call them my sex in the city friends in the book. Like they had no idea. They, and they were the my closest friends. They're still my closest friends. We're still 
the same in each other's lives, like still monthly dinners and text chains. We didn't have text chains then, but, um, you know, that kind of thing. And, and they didn't know. Nobody knew. We're going to take a quick break for commercials and we'll be right back with our guest. And we're back. You're talking about like, oh, I had a house in Malibu. Oh, I had, you know, all these kinds of things that are like privileged. And I think a big part, at least for me, like I'm going to even like Al-Anon in response to like my dad's addictions. There's like a part of you initially that goes like, well, I'm not like these people. Yes. I'm not like these people. Yes. How did you get past this idea of like, but I live in a big house and I have, you know, all this stuff. Like I'm, I'm not like these people, these degenerates or whatever. Yeah. I mean, tumbling. (laughs) It is so humbling. And and my dad too, my dad's um, almost 39 years sober. His, his father, my grandfather was one of 18. Wow. Children. Same two parents. Oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) That poor woman. Were there twins or 18 pregnancies? 18 children. There were two sets of twins. Okay. All right. I know. Like, yeah. (laughs) But all the men died from alcoholism or alcohol related diseases. Yeah. So I knew like my grandfather died on the toilet, you know, with his kidneys bleeding out with a bottle in his hand. I knew what alcoholism looked like. It did not look like me. Mm-hmm. It didn't look like what I was doing. I fully understood that this was what they were dealing with. Mine was something different. At least it was in my mind. And so I fe- absolutely felt that way in meetings. I was like halfway listening, absolutely judging everybody. I again, when I first when I first got sober, it was 2008. Smartphones, iPhones had just come out, I think. I think they came out that year, but I didn't have one yet. So I wasn't checking my phone the way that I would now if I were like smug and eye rolling. But (laughs) I was absolutely sitting in the back of the room with my arms folded, just not participating, but like intentionally not participating because Mm -hmm. they were different than me. Mm -hmm. And, And again, with the race factor, but also just where these are low down, these are DUI having, these are people, you know, who were institutionalized by their families, like these are people who lost custody of their children. Mm-hmm. I I didn't tick any of those boxes. And I felt really smug about it, honestly. And it was a couple of years before I started to see myself, see the similarities, not just see the similarities, but really feel the similarities and understand that my story is really no different. Right. Isn't it funny to find out you're not that unique? Yes. <laughs> it's disheartening. And, you know, absolutely, I can laugh about it now. But I did find a woman um, to sponsor me when I was about four months sober, who was the PTA president, who lived in a big house, who she was white, but she ticked all these other boxes for me. And I was like, wow. And I immediately beelined to her after I heard her speak because it it was like um, things started lighting up in me, Mm -hmm. like Everything that had been dark started, like all these lights started coming on. And I was like, maybe I can do this. She's eight years sober, which seemed like a lifetime then. Like, maybe I can too. I'm curious, like how it stuck for you, because it seems like you kind of went in not really like in a way like ready for it. But it, it seems like the the recovery program worked, the program, you know, the AA work. Like, 
why do you think that you were able to stay sober despite having all these kind of like conflicting thoughts about it? I, I really wish I knew the answer to that. Or maybe I don't. I don't know. I think that one of the things is I was really scared of losing my kids. I was really scared of losing custody of them. And in my divorce decree, there were all these stipulations about what how quickly he would gain sole custody if I used, if I was found to have anything in my system or in my house. Like there were all these things that made it so that if I violated them, I would I would be looking at losing my kids or I would have lost them. And and that was motivation for me for the first couple of years. Like I I was able to reverse the addiction and the mm-hmm. maternal instinct, like just enough so that maternal instinct edged out addiction where, you know, before it had been completely overshadowed by it. And so I did everything that was told to me again with my arms folded, kicking and screaming, hating it, leaving early, arriving late, not speaking to anybody. But I was at three meetings a day. And when I got that sponsor, I did everything she told me to do, everything. I didn't believe it, but I went through the <laughs> actions of it. And, you know, she said, get there five minutes early. She said, put money that folds and not jingles in the basket. She said, sit up front and pay attention to what everybody says. I'm going to ask you three things that you heard after the meeting. I did everything. Mm. And I started like I picture myself like a glacier or a block of ice that first year. You know, when I turned one, I think I really started to thaw. And I think I was thawing for a number of years, like five or six years. I believe I'm defrosted now. (laughs) (laughs) What was it like to start a new relationship during this time of your life? That was just really insane. It was, it really was like, you know, we weren't like a rehab hookup. Like we didn't hook up there. It wasn't, it wasn't like that. He was really like my friend, but you know, there was just so much at stake. He did have four DUIs. He was looking at prison time. He has two daughters that are now my bonus daughters um, that he was risking being separated from, you know, forever, you know, visiting, being behind glass every time he saw them. And I had, you know, this divorce and my kids and and this life that I really wanted to hold on to at stake. And it was absolutely the wrong time to look at beginning a relationship. But, but it was the wrong time to look at beginning a relationship. However, what we did was kind of right away, we established a batting order where our respective recoveries came first, no matter what. Mm -hmm. And then our families, our respective families came second. So my kids, his kids, his parents, my parents, you know, like that was what came second. And then everything else, including each other came third. And so maintaining that order, I think is what allowed us to, get to know each other. We didn't move in together for six years. We dated for six years. Mm -hmm. He went to a sober living. I was back home. I really was like, I was intense mommy to my kids. Like that's all I was doing. I was making up for lost time. I was being present. They were entering middle school. It was a lot of work. Um, One of my, my older son is severely dyslexic. So there were like, you know, extracurriculars for him and interventions. So I I was busy with my three meetings a day and that and and I gave him what little time I had left and he did the same for me. And so we ended up, I think, building a healthy foundation for a relationship because we were both able to stick to that. So funny, like the whole thing about like, don't date in recovery, don't date in recovery. But then like my aunt and uncle met in recovery and they were like a perfect couple. So, Uh, you know, I don't know. Well, and there's something to being with somebody, you know, Scott's, Scott's white, 
blue eyed, blonde hair, spent the last 20 <laughs> years in Utah as an outdoorsman. Oh, wow. I mean, could not be more opposite than me. Our musical tastes, like I'm a lover of the great indoors. Like all I want to do is stay inside. And he <laughs> and I, you know, on paper should not have been together. But my goodness, what we share as because we're both in recovery and because we're, we're both involved in it in a really similar way is so great. You know, I, there are just like the language that we speak, the way we, we can talk about, like we go to meetings together, we talk about the meetings before and after. I mean, that's not all we do, but, you know, we can go to a party <laughs> together and not drink together and talk right. about the drunk people. And we can, you know, it's just, it's really fun. And I'm not saying that I, I obviously I couldn't be with someone who's not in recovery. If that was, if I fell in love with someone and they were the right person for me, I would, but I really do enjoy those similarities that we have. Totally. So sweet. Before we move on to the game, I just love to ask, like, what do you want people to like walk away from your book? Like, what do you want them to take away from your book? Two things. If you're enduring anything and waiting for something to happen, maybe look at taking action that moves you toward the possibility of happiness, as scary as it might seem, whatever that might be, a job, a relationship, a living situation. That's one thing. The other thing is um, purchasing Stash My Life in Hiding is really voting for more voices of color in this quitlet space. That's Q-U-I-T-L-I-T. Quitlet. Yes. I've never heard of that. Yes, it is literature geared toward helping people examine their relationship with drugs and alcohol. It is a fast growing genre. Um, it is dominated by white women. It's not just dominated by white women. There just aren't any women of color in it. If you Google yeah. Quitlet, you'll see a bevy of white female authors, maybe Matthew Perry, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe someone else, but not, you will not see um, black women. You won't see Asian women. You won't see Latino women. So buying Stash My Life in Hiding tells publishers that you can make money <laughs> off this genre and maybe we should invite more voices of color in to tell these stories. Yeah, that's such a good point. Now we have to play a very, very silly game. Okay. <laughs> I love it. I'm ready. So this game is called Hypotheticals. You and Gabe are going to be my contestants. I'm going to share a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you might have and then tell me what you would do in that situation. And, and sometimes I declare a winner. <laughs> oh, okay. So the stakes are pretty low. <laughs> and these are all out of Allison's beautiful mind. Okay. So let's see what she's got <laughs> That's today. That's one description for it. Um, so our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? Ooh. You and your partner of 13 years constantly fight over how much time they spend with their family. So when they are invited on a huge family reunion cruise, you refuse to go because you don't want to be trapped on a boat with those people. <laughs> During the cruise, your partner makes out with their third cousin no. through marriage, who is a very famous musician that no one thought would come. Would you stay with this cheater? No. <laughs> it's through marriage. I don't care. No. No. Absolutely not. I mean, no. <laughs> I'm not going to say what I was going to say about certain... Dis, they're not related to me. It doesn't matter. You're I, attracted to your third cousins? No, 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 not my cousins. They're not my cousins. They're not my cousins. They're not my cousins. I can't say that enough. Um, <laughs> they are not my cousins. Uh, but no, that's ridiculous. What that? 
It's just a makeout, and they're a very famous musician. That's so what? But it was a family reunion cruise. I feel like that's punitive. Like they were they were being vindictive because I didn't want to go on yes. the cruise. Is that why? Yes. They were lonely. Oh, they were lonely. So they had to make out with who I'm imagining to be Adam Levine from Maroon 5. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would I would not stay in a situation like that. Here's like the thing for me is, you know, uh, sometimes making out with somebody, even if it is a cousin, is not a deal breaker for certain relationships. If you've agreed that this is something you guys can do. But for me, in my relationship, this is this is not acceptable. We cannot go and be intimate with anyone emotionally or otherwise without we just can't. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Especially at a family reunion. I would go, I would be like, even if I am like non-monogamous, I would go, well, at the family reunion, like who are they going to? Right, right. You're safe there. I think it's a safe space. Yeah, but it wasn't. And it wasn't. No, I'd be, I'd be done. All right. I'd be done. And then how do you get off that boat? No, we're you not on you the didn't boat. go on the oh, boat. Oh, right. We're not on the boat. Be... So yeah, yeah, right. yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So we pack up our stuff while they're yes. out to sea. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then we say, we're leaving you mm -hmm. and we try to get divorced while they're on the Ooh, sea so that they're yes. beholden to maritime law. <gasps> I don't know if that's how that works. That, but. <laughs> but that sounds good. I like that. It sounds right? very yeah. good. <laughs> right? Okay, I agree. We all leave. Who was the singer? Elvis Costello. Wow, I do love him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's cool. All right, fair enough. Yeah. Okay, our next scenario. Is this a date? You are in an Uber pool on the way to a bar and you start chatting with the other passenger. When you arrive at your location, they tell the Uber driver they're going to get out here as well because you made the bar seem better than the bar they were going to originally. Is this a date? Oh, I would hate that. That's creepy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if I like them, okay, I guess. But like, that's like, ugh, now I have to, I wasn't anticipating having to like, be with this person now that now I feel responsible for their good time. No, I mean, unless right. there's like an attraction, like an instant chemistry in the back of that Uber, I would not want anybody to follow me out like that. That feels right? almost like stalking, too. Like, I would not like that. Where? Why am I going to the bar? You're meeting up with some friends. Oh. Yeah, see, that's annoying because like yeah. now I'm like bringing this weird rando to this group of friends. I don't know him. I can't vouch for him. Right. So this is not good advice. Don't do this if you're in an Uber pool. <laughs> Just get a phone number. Just get the phone number and meet up later. Yeah, don't. Because now you're like making yourself a part of their evening. And like, I don't want to be responsible for someone that like, I don't even know. But you don't have to hang out with them at the oh, bar. Oh, I'm just going to leave them at the bar. I'm just going to go have a good time by yourself and then go to my friends and never look at them. No. So, but wait, this is the person in my position, right? I'm putting myself in the person's position who's asking, is this a date? They're the person who was followed into the bar. Yeah. So they like this person then. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I think you did have a real chemistry with them in the car and now they're getting off to hang out in the bar you're going to. So that to. could be date-ish or date adjacent if yeah. there was a connection in the car and then they got out where you got out. That could be the start of something. Right. See, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm also so easily distracted. Like my, fr I would be like, if I did like the person, my friends, I, w I would be like, oh, I know I was here to hang out with you guys, but I'm actually just. Gonna I know you acted like you hate that. You would love that. You go off with that person. I know, but I, but then I'm a bad friend. You see what I'm saying? Well, something to think about. Something to think about. <laughs> right. Okay. Our final scenario. Would you forgive 
this liar. Once, when you were 17, you accidentally hit another car on the highway. And your mom freaked out and grounded you for four months and didn't let you drive again until you were 18. When you tried to fight it by saying people get in accidents, your mom told you that's not true and good drivers don't get in accidents. Seven years later, your parents are getting divorced and your dad tells you your mom has gotten hit upwards of 20 car accidents (laughs) and hid them all for you. Would you forgive this liar? I mean... I would not forget. <laughs> I I would definitely be bringing that up at different intervals, but I might forgive her. It depends on her rationale. But that's kind of crazy. You can't forget that. That's a good burn to have always. My mom has hit a lot of poles. <laughs> yeah. I remember a long time ago, my dad making fun of the fact that like if she's pulling out of a parking space and there's a pole next door, like good luck to that pole. Like, right. She like I remember when I was younger, I'm just remembering my dad making a joke. Being like, yeah, for some reason for your mom, like the poles jump out in front of her car. (laughs) So I don't have any. Here's the thing about me is I don't have any illusions about my parents being perfect in any way. Like if if it was like my mom said, I've never hit a car. I've never had a car accident. I'd be like, that's literally not true. Like I would never think that was true. So I forgive her. Oh, yeah, I would. Um. Like you alluded to, I would be bringing it up at every turn. Yes. <laughs> every time we're in the car, I'd be like, watch out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> be mm-hmm. like, Do you want me to drive? Oh, <laughs> my like, God. It would be my favorite new bit. Yes. But oh I would God. be very mad, I think. I'd be very mad. I guess it kept me from getting in accidents. Ah. Did it, though? It just meant you weren't allowed to drive until you were 18. You've been in plenty of accidents since then. I have? Yeah. They've been all my fault. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, man, then I don't forgive. You're from a family with poor peripheral vision. <laughs> <laughs> then I don't forgive because it didn't actually benefit me in any mm. way. Yeah. And sense. guess what? As an extension, they're a terrible parent. <gasps> That's our other game. Wow. I, you're a terrible parent. Wow, now it's really, two games yeah, in one. You combined them. Good work. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, thank you so, so much for this interview. I think it was so helpful and illuminating. And where can people find you and your book? Thank you so much. This is so much fun. I love your show. (laughs) It's so good. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I was listening to some episodes beforehand and just forgetting to listen for like how I might participate and just getting lost in the interview because they were so good. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to be on. Yeah, thank you. And... You can find me at, so uh, theonlyonepod.com is the website that houses everything. And it's all like the socials and the speaking and pictures and bios and interviews. You can find me on Instagram. That's where I'm most active at, at Laura Cathcart Robbins. That's C-A-T-H-C-A-R-T Robbins with two B's and an S. And I spend about 15 minutes every night answering my DMs from the day. So please send me one. Let me know what you think of Stash My Life in Hiding, which you can find anywhere you buy books. But I would really encourage you to go to your local bookstore, your independent bookstore, and and order it from them or buy it there. Local bookstores, independent bookstores are dying and we need them. They're, They're beautiful, you know, sanctuaries from the outside world, from the digital space to go in and smell the bindings you know, in a bookstore, sometimes they have little places where you can sit and read. They're just magical. And I, I don't want to see them go extinct. So 
please buy my book. But if you can buy it from your independent bookstore. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about Melissa's writing workshop. Just between us, it's time for topics. X, 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 baby. 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 Beautiful. Melissa, brag, 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 brag on yourself. I got selected for the Stowe TV Writing Lab. Woo! It's so cool. 12 people were selected. I would say all around the US, but I think there's somebody from Australia in it too. So across the, the world. Wow. What, what so did you cool. submit to get in? I submitted the first 15 pages of Fortuitous Heights, which y'all haven't read the new version. But I haven't read the new version. But yeah. let me just say to anyone listening, Melissa's show, Fortuitous Heights, if you don't buy it, you're stupid. <laughs> Thank it's, you. It's so good. <laughs> Thank you so much. And then I had to do a logline for the new script that I'm going to develop during this mm-hmm. class. Right. Also... Just information about like where I see it going, but not too much because they just wanted to see that you had an idea and it was a fully formed idea that you kind of knew what you were doing already, you know, but just needed some guidance. That's so interesting. They only wanted 15 pages of your sample. Yeah. Because they must just get so many submissions. Mm -hmm. And they want to be able to guide you like on the new thing that you're doing. They don't want it to be like too entrenched. Uh Uh-huh. Because it was like, even if like this could change, but we still just need to know that you have a solid idea. So what have you found beneficial about being in a workshop versus working yourself by yourself? So I've only had one lab um, so far. The first four weeks will be working with the showrunner from the center. And so it's more of him talking about his process in the writing room, but Mm. he's giving a lot of valuable information about how he develops things and giving like tools for us about the first class essentially was like introducing ourselves, telling a little bit about our project, him talking about his process with developing the center and then giving us these very specific questions that he has for each character that Mm. when he's developing characters. And I found it so like just that information was so invaluable Um, The benefit is that I have had this idea. This might have been one of the first ideas that I've had for a pilot. And it's gone through a lot of iterations and I still haven't been able to just get it right. Mm -hmm. And so I, I figured this would be the perfect opportunity for me to be able to work with people that are very knowledgeable Everybody that's in the program also is working in entertainment in some way or form. Most most people are writers, but there's some people that have been like creative producers also being able to throw out ideas and get feedback from them as well. Yeah. Are they reading your stuff, too? They will be. Yeah, that'll be the next part. Part two of the program. Yeah, I mean, one of the best things of of my college program, which was like a BFA in screenwriting was just kind of learning how to take notes, mm-hmm. like how to just like take notes from other people and not let it like ruin your whole yeah. life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because it's a skill set. It's a skill set both to be able to 
implement the notes of like once you're back with the work and and trying to figure out what the person meant but then also the skill set of how to take them in the moment because mm-hmm. you you want to be like fuck you yeah <laughs> yeah and that's how i i was maybe like three or four years ago but now i'm just like i take i see the notes if i even if i i look at it is this constructive or not yeah and if it is then i'm like totally like I'm going to, you know, implement them. And if they're not, if I don't think it's going to be effective in any way, then I'm just like, whatever. I'm delighted when someone has a note that fixes everything. Yeah. That is better. I did a writing workshop for the novel that I'm working on selling now. And I had it set in a completely different setting, Mm -hmm. a very complicated setting for no reason. And what was it? Okay. It's not going to make any sense with how it actually turned out. But initially, the entire story was set on like an American Idol reality show, <laughs> which was just an, it didn't need it like it didn't need that. Yeah. Like, you mm-hmm. know, it could just be in a war in the world. But I was like, well, those are high stakes. But it it had nothing to do with anything. It was just like a random like addition. And I had written like so much of it. And then the guy who's running the workshop was like in our one on one. He was like. I guess like, why is it taking place on reality TV? (laughs) And I knew that in my heart, but nobody had said it to me. And he said it and I went, you're right. Yeah. You're right. It didn't at all. Because he was like, try to answer it. He's like, no, seriously, like why in your mind is it taking place here? And I was like, it shouldn't. (laughs) Yeah. That's like um, for Fortuitous Heights, I got notes back from somebody that generally most of their notes were terrible and like, And I gave like, cause it's a soap opera, a daytime soap opera. And I said that like daytime soap operas do not follow the same structure Mm -hmm. as what like a a, A drama, a drama that a primetime drama. And I was like, these, this is the structure, blah, blah. And they like went through, like they, they basically was saying like, this is a terrible structure. And I was like, it's not the same type of structure. I didn't create this structure. I didn't create the structure. This is what the structure is. You cannot think of it as a primetime drama but they had one note they're like is this the way that like y'all both have read it if is like in having the interns is that the best way to introduce like the show as a whole and I was like you know what no and I changed it and now it's like I feel like it's so much better but like out of all the terrible notes they gave they did give one good note that helped the story be better and I feel like sometimes the note is wrong but it has figured out that it has located the problem. Yeah. Do you yeah. know what I mean? So like the note and like, or the fix or whatever they're reacting to, like the way they say it is like, what? That doesn't make any sense for yes. my story, but they are bumping up against something that does need addressing in a different uh-huh. way. Yeah. Definitely. Um, which is like, a, was like a hard pill to swallow. Yes. <laughs> I've been doing a lot of times. Friends had reached out to me and asked me to look over their pitches And I had been doing that for for different friends of mine. And I realized, like, I thought initially, I was like, I don't really have anything to say. I don't really have any expertise or whatever. And then I would, like, get the pitch and I would look at it and I'd be like, oh, well, this is wrong. This is wrong. Like, I had so many opinions. And so then I did this thing where I was like, uh, I'm doing these, like, workshops, Mm -hmm. like, pitch idea workshops. And fans and people who want to work in the industry or whatever have been doing, we've been doing these one-on-one zooms and they've been delightful and amazing and I'm probably going to do it again I did like a rush of like 20 of them I'm probably going to do more and it was just been 
I like will start the thing and I'll be like, I don't know, who am I? I don't really have any opinions or expertise. And then I like go through and I'm like, no, I've been doing this for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Like I actually do. I've sold shows. Like I do have expertise in this. If I can take a look at this and I and I know immediately what needs to happen. Now, what's interesting is with my own work, it's harder to do. Like I can look at someone else's work and go, uh, well, no, no, this, this, and this. But when I'm in the weeds on something, I'm so in love with it and yeah. like married to certain parts yep. of it that I'm like, no, this is what's important. And it's been good doing these workshops and like teaching other people because it has me go back and look at my stuff and say, actually, you're being really precious about this. Mm-hmm. Or like you're you're explaining this in a way that is makes sense to you, but you know it's not gonna make sense to other people. And so like anyone that I meet with for these groups, I say to them, have you read a lot of scripts? Mm -hmm. Have you read a lot of other pitches? Because like that helps. Like they'll be like, you know, it's hard to write a novel if you don't read novels. Right. It's hard to write pitches or scripts if you've never seen what goes into a pitch or a script. Like they'll write like a huge thing about the themes, you know, of the show. And I'll be like, yeah, that's great. But I think it's a better idea to think about the tone or where it's going to live or, you know, certain things that I think when you're a creative, you don't want to think about that. You want to be like, and my characters are rich and here are these, and there's a business side to it. Yeah. He shared with us the, um, his pitch for the center was so simple. I was like, okay, I got (laughs) to, that was based off of a book. It was based off of a book, but he still had to, cause he had to pitch that like he was the person to mm-hmm. do the job yeah. but his pitch itself and he developed because it's it's told from the book itself is told from core's perspective the main girl. the main characters like it's just from her mm. pov and the show is not like that at all uh, and then also um there's three more seasons that have nothing to do with the book so right. like he had all that like in his back pocket that he was going to if it got picked up for more because it was initially a, a um, limited series. Right. And he was like, if it got picked up for more, I knew what I was going to do with the rest of it. Oh, that's so cool. So, um, yeah, his pitch was, and so I was like, okay, like. I want right. to read it. <laughs> I can't show you. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing I realized is like, I sometimes it's like, am I not taking the note because I disagree? Or is it because of, I don't want to do the work? Yep. <laughs> and that's like, I just had this thing where I'm like, working on sample chapters for a novel and like my book agent was like why don't you make your you know you need to show not tell like turn this into a whole scene instead and I was like Ugh, yeah I don't want to do that and then I was like I should do that but then yeah. for like another part I was like I don't I had like a reason why I didn't want to do it which was that I didn't want this character to like feel like a real character with dialogue until later yeah. in the book so I was like that is why I don't want to ma- build this into a full scene and just be like an internal flashback but then for the other one, I was like, I'm just not doing this because I don't want to. And that's not a real reason. Yeah. The other thing is, it's funny. I'm grateful for notes and stuff like that because I was just thinking of other books I've read where I, the person didn't either didn't take the note and you know they didn't or someone has reached a level where nobody tells them no. Mm-hmm. Nobody gives them notes. No, but they're not, they're just blank check, able to do whatever they want. And I think the work suffers. Yes, I agree. Or then there's people that don't stand by their convictions too, where they take every note and it's just Mm -hmm. a mess as well. I know that's what's so hard is like, 
you know, doing these pitches. I want to show that I'm easy to work with, but I also want to like make it seem like I have a vision, you know? So it's like, how do you do that at the same time? I know, that's so hard. (laughs) I know. It's been easy because everyone's passed, but you know. (laughs) I know the feeling. (laughs) It's so interesting because it'll be like, I love the script, you know? And then it's like, we have this pitch and it like goes well. And then they're like, nah, never mind. Yeah. Like what's happening behind closed doors? What am I doing wrong in the pitch itself? You You're know? not doing anything. It's not you. It's it's that nobody wants to um, buy anything, and also like everyone's scared of being wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're scared. Like their jobs hinge on it's basically gambling. Yep. Even when I was pitching out for Tudor's Heights. Everybody was like, we love this. This is like so creative. Like, I don't, we don't know how you created all this world, blah, blah, blah. And then like, then they'd be like, no, because we're not, they're scared to make another daytime soap opera. Yeah. I mean, it's heartening and also scary to hear that like, literally the most famous person will pitch something and it just won't go. Mm -hmm. But then, okay, sorry to say, but I don't like look at the, I get the scripts, like I get the. This is what I work so hard. I make the script look so nice. I felt yeah. spell check it, everything. And then I get the email that's like, here are the scripts that are going this year. And they'll send you all of them, like mm-hmm. your agents. And it'll just I don't be get like that. You, sh- you should. should. Yeah. Really? I've never gotten an email like that. Really? You should. Yeah. Ask them for it. CAA, come on. But then I read them and it's like misspelling. There's the character misspelling. makes no sense. Or like, the character's blatantly racist. And I'm like, what is going on? It's not in the right structure. I'm or, so confused. I know. And that's just probably someone who they were like, give them a blank check. Mm-hmm. And they just type. They just typed it. Or with it fits their, the mandate. Whatever yeah. mandate they've like used with their algorithms to figure yeah. out what it is that they want. And they've just typed out like with their eyes closed mm-hmm. or something. It's really. <laughs> I've read it makes some bad scripts. Horrible. Like, like really. And I'm like, what, how is this on TV? Or. It'll be like the one of the best scripts I ever read. They didn't make the show and it had two stars attached to it Mm -hmm. and the show didn't go. And I'm like, this is like out of I read probably like, I don't know, 50 scripts that year. And it was the same year as the Goldbergs Mm -hmm. and the Goldbergs was the best pilot I read. And then this was the second best. And it just and then it didn't get picked up. But other garbagey stuff did. Yep. And then sometimes you're like looking at just like the preview of it and you're like, that show looks really bad and I bet it won't last more than five episodes. And usually that's the case. <laughs> I thought you were going to have a twist, but no. No, nope, it's not <laughs> the case. What do we rate this episode? I rate it nine out of eight, um, knowing when you need help. Mm. I'll rate it. 27 out of 15 swollen dog paws. Oh, I'll rate it 15 out of eight. Buy houses with friends. You know, cut back on the stress. (laughs) Thank you to Laura Cathcart Robbins for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabe Dunn. Produced by Melissa Diamond Montz. Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. 
To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, you can follow this podcast at Just Between Us Pod on TikTok and at JBU Podcast on Instagram. Also, I'm on Instagram now at Gabe S. Dunn. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Raskin. And on TikTok at, at Allison Raskin Baby. And I'm on TikTok as Dabby Gun. So branding's going really well over here. Yeah, good luck finding us. Forever. Dog. <laughs>